Our scripture passage this morning is the same seven verses in Romans chapter 1 that we've read the last three weeks. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The first chapter of Romans beginning at verse 1, page 1380. And uh, when you find that, kind of hold that open for a moment. Because before we read it, I want us to open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this is a holy moment when we come to your holy word. We are about to read once again from the greatest letter ever written, the letter from the Apostle Paul to the beloved of God at Rome. This letter has turned the world on its head more than once in the last 2,000 years. Lord, we are in need of this message. We are in need of your grace, your peace, your love, your assurance of faith. And so as we read and study this letter today, may you bring about the obedience of faith in each one of us, your servants, who pray in Jesus' name for his name's sake. Amen. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice that's all one sentence? The Apostle Paul has a tendency to do that. I remember taking a, a class in Ephesians at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. We, whenever we took a book of the Bible, like Romans or Ephesians, we had to diagram. Remember sentence diagrams from English class? And so the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians are all one, one sentence. Paul is famous for that. He writes Paul in verse 1, and in verse 7 he says, To all who are in Rome, and he adds practically the entire gospel in the phrases in between. And so this morning we're going to look at the last few phrases in verses 6 and 7. John MacArthur told the story of an extremely wealthy man who possessed vast treasures of art. The man had one son, who was a very ordinary boy, who passed away suddenly in obscurity. It had little effect on anybody. He reached a certain age in his life, and he died rather unexpectedly as a young man. The father mourned the son greatly. Within a few months after the death of his beloved son, the father died as well, and he left that incredible wealth bound up in art treasures. And he left a will that said the art treasures are to be auctioned off. And, and strangely enough in his will, the father stipulated that one particular painting, one particular portrait in this valuable art collection was to be auctioned first. The painting was that of his son, done by an artist nobody knew. And so the auctioneer, in accordance with the will, did exactly what was required. And first of all, to that large crowd that was assembled, he directed his attention to the painting 
of the rather obscure son of the wealthy man and started the bidding there. No one knew the boy. No one knew the artist. No one really cared about the boy or the painting. And a long time passed without any bid at all. And finally, an old black man who had been a servant in the house of the wealthy man came forward. And he said he would like to place a $1 bid on the painting of the son, whom he loved very much. At this point in his life, that's all he could afford. There were no other bids, and the black servant was able to purchase the painting of the son for $1. Then the dramatic moment came as the auctioneer read the next portion of the will. It said, All the rest of the treasure shall go to the one who loved my son long enough and strong enough to purchase his portrait. There is no way to comprehend the riches that God has provided for us who love his son. No way. They are infinite. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The Bible says things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And this is the good news, isn't it? That if we love the Son, we inherit all the riches of the Son. In Christ, we have treasures beyond imagination. John MacArthur puts it this way. The Bible says that if we love the Son, we'll have a faithfulness that will never be removed. We will have a life that will never end. We'll have a spring of water that will never cease to bubble up within us. We will have a gift that can never be lost. We'll have a handout of which the resources will never end. We'll have a chain that will never be broken. We'll have a love from which we can never be separated. We have a calling that will never be revoked, a foundation that will never be destroyed, and an inheritance that will never, ever, ever fade away. One of my favorite songs is Why Me, Lord? Now, I know that's not everybody's favorite song. Chris Christopherson sang it, uh, Johnny Cash sang it, but I can remember being in a photocopy place in, in the 1970s, probably would have been 1974, and this was a time when this song was going through my mind no matter everywhere I went. All I could hear was and I didn't really mind it. You know, there's some songs I like to get rid of. You know, oh, I can't. But this was one, it was running through my mind. And it was doing this for several weeks. And on a particular day, I was with one of my fellow architectural students in the photocopy place who wanted to put a large watermark on, on the paper on which he was going to type his thesis. And, and it was really an odd situation. My fellow student was designing a Playboy club for his architectural thesis. And he wanted that Playboy logo with the ears and those kind of things printed on every sheet of paper as a gray light background. So he would type his thesis over the top of that. And the man who waited on us, the man who owned the photocopy place, was a United States congressman who was LDS. And watching a U.S. congressman try everything, a Mormon U.S. congressman trying to do everything he could to print a Playboy logo on every sheet of paper so you could still read the typing over the top was unreal. But the song kept running through my mind as I watched this scene play out. Why me, Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? 
Tell me, Lord, would I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus. I've wasted it so. Help me, Jesus. I know what I am, but now I know that I've needed you. So help me, Jesus. My soul's in your hand. Verses 6 and 7 of Romans chapter 1 answer the question, Why me, Lord? Why you? Why any one of us? Why did God choose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world so that we might not only be saved, but we would share in the inheritance of the Son of God and all that that means? Why did God choose us? Why have we received grace? Why have we been given spiritual gifts, gifts of grace given by the Holy Spirit so that we might serve Christ and his church for the common good and the building up of the body of Christ? Last week we focused on verse 5 of Romans chapter 1 and we saw that God saves us and gives us grace for service. He gives us grace gifts. Charis, gift, charismata, spiritual gifts that we might serve him, that we might be used of him to bring about the obedience of faith in other people. And God gives us gifts and saves us for the purpose of being participants and workers in the church, the great cathedral that he is building upon this earth among us. God saves us and gives us grace for service. So in verses 6 and 7, we get the second part of this. God saving us and giving us gifts is based on his calling us and setting his love upon us. This answers the question, why me, Lord? Personalize that. Why, why me? And we pick it up in mid-sentence in verse 6 of Romans chapter 1. Among all those who have received grace and gifts to bring about the obedience of faith in all the peoples are the Christians in Rome, verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus. Why me, Lord? Because God calls us to belong to Jesus Christ. God calls us. Now Paul's emphasis in all of verses 1 through 7 is not what we do for God, but rather what God has done for us. The basis for any service to Christ is that God has effectually called us, called you to belong to Christ, and he has set his love upon you, and he has set you apart unto himself, bestowing his grace and peace upon you. Now I want you to think about the audacity of this for a moment. We need to feel this. Here we are in a small town in a small room in a small town in Idaho, which Idaho is a small state population-wise in the United States, and the United States is only 4% of the world's population. And if you want to put it another way, we live in one of the poorest counties and one of the poorest states in the nation. Did you know that? And as you know, huge things are happening all over the world. Islam is trying to take over through terrorism, through ISIS, through immigration. Big celebration this last week as Iraqi forces took back Mosul, the bombed out, devastated city. North Korea claims it can nuke Alaska. 
Russia, China, Korea, everyone, it seems, are rattling their sabers through these war games and setting off missiles and flybys within five feet of, of, of each other in these huge planes. And, but over against all this huge global reality, I stand here this morning infinitesimally small by comparison. And as I was thinking about this, you know, sometimes those movies start and you can see the earth out from space, that beautiful blue marble, and then it'll zoom in and then it'll, you'll see the United States and then it'll zoom into Idaho. You can see Idaho, you'll zoom into a little place called Emmett, Idaho. And in Emmett, Idaho, we got this roof of a little tiny log building <laughs> called Grace Baptist Church in a little tiny spot that I only take up about one square feet of a world that has 57 billion square miles. <laughs> and I stand here to say that the God who created the universe and holds all of these countries and armies and weapons and systems in his power is at work right here, here and now in our world. Mainly calling individual persons to himself to be part of his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you whom God calls beloved are among that number. And what God has done in loving you and calling you to Jesus Christ will have infinitesimally more eternal significance than whoever is the political Korea, uh, leader of Korea or Russia or China or the United States or whoever has nuclear weapons. God or Paul is writing to God's beloved in the city of Rome. Rome, the center of the empire at the time, which stretched from England to Persia. Paul wrote to a little enclave of unknown people, some of them he names in the back, and we don't even know who they are for the most part. Many of, or who most of, were slaves. 50% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And he wrote to them because they were called of Jesus Christ, beloved of God, called as saints. So what does it mean that they were called of God? That they were called to belong to Jesus Christ? What does it mean that we as believers are called of God? Please turn over to the 8th chapter of Romans to one of your favorite scripture passages. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Probably every other week or so as we go through the book of Romans, we'll probably be coming back to Romans chapter 8 because, boy, this just seems to be the, the pinnacle. In Romans chapter 8, we see something about being called of God. And this is critical to our understanding. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are, what? Called according to his purposes. Now, does God work out everything to work together for good for everybody? Not even close. Only for those who are called. Now, this is something that's difficult to understand for, for people who live in democratic societies like the United States. Now, demo, democracy is the, the best kind of government for living in a corrupt and evil world. But the idea of being called of God will not move us, it will not fill us, it will not move us to worship and gratitude and wonder and worship the way that it should 
as long as we think the way typical American lovers of democracy think. As Americans, we believe in government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I fully believe that. I studied it. I loved the history of it. That's not a bad way for, for human beings. In fact, it's the best kind of, of government for humankind. But when it gets transferred to the way God governs the world, it's a very bad idea for God. Because it creates the impression that human rights and privileges are at the center of the universe. And the only thing that should distinguish one person from another person is their own effort, their intelligence, their courage, or, or their vision, their ingenuity. Otherwise, we must all be treated equally. And that God, here's what happens when we translate this to God, that God must do for everyone what he does for anyone. Have you ever thought of that? But what if the human heart is corrupt and hard and rebellious and blind and virtually dead to spiritual reality? As Ephesians 4.18 says it is. Ephesians 4 verse 18 says that everyone in the world living without Christ walks in the futility of their mind. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. In that case, the only thing that self-reliance and equal rights can produce is more death. Because it's the sinful human heart that is wanting these things. And the only thing that can save us from our own corruption is divine, supernatural, powerful, awakening, call from God. If we say in democratic fashion that God must call everyone the same way he calls anyone, we do not understand how deeply sinful and rebellious and undeserving we are. If God calls anyone, if God calls anyone at all, it is grace, free and totally undeserved. And God is not obliged to call anyone, if he, everyone, if he calls anyone, because he does not call any on the basis of human merit or human value. We'll see how this works out here in a little bit. Democracy proceeds on the basis of universal human rights. But rebellious, sinful humans have absolutely no rights in relationship to God. All divine condemnation is just. All divine... Salvation is gracious. A friend of ours in Elko, when her kids would say to her, well, that's not fair. She would say, if God was fair, everybody would go to hell. <laughs> Maybe not the right thing to tell your kids, but that's exactly it. I think they did shape up. <laughs> Romans chapter 9, verse 15 says, God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And then it goes on in verse 16 to say, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So it doesn't depend upon our human will. It doesn't pretend upon our pursuit of God. It only depends upon God breaking into our lives out of grace and mercy and reaching us and our, our hearts. The fact that anyone is called from darkness to light is a wonder of grace. Just a wonder of grace. And the fact that anyone is called at all is an act of God's mercy. 
Now in verses 29 and 30 of Romans chapter 8, if we go back to that 8th chapter, we see this in the unbroken chain related to those whom God calls. I'll read verse 28 again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified you. Why did God call you to conform you to the image of his Son, to make you more and more like Jesus Christ? But notice, and this is so important, Everyone that God foreknew in his foreknowledge, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And everyone he predestined, he what? He called. And everyone he called, he justified, made that person right before himself. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's the entire unbroken chain of salvation. It's all God's doing that nobody can boast to say that God owed it to me or I had something or anything to do with it. I deserved it or, or whatever. This is called God's effectual call in theology. When God called you, when God calls anyone, it sets in motion all of these things that God will fulfill. Philippians 1.6 for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. For new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. To be a Christian means that God has intervened in your life. To be a Christian means that God called you out of darkness into the kingdom of light where you now belong to Jesus Christ and you have fellowship with him. The Apostle Paul often uses those two words of our standing as in Christ, in Christ. We are, are totally identified with him. And this implies a fundamental break with the world, that we, we no longer love the world or the things of the world or the things that the world lives for. We are now those who have been called to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why me, Lord? Because God called me to belong to Jesus Christ. God called you to belong to him. Secondly, why me, Lord? God calls us because he has set his love upon us. This is, this is really where it gets good. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Who was Paul writing to? Verse 7. To all who were loved of God in Rome. Here again, we see the exclusiveness of the call of God. In other words, God does not call everyone. If God called everyone, otherwise everybody would be justified, glorified, and everybody is not. And here we see that the call of God comes from God's call or God's love for you. To all who are beloved of God in Rome. They are the called of Jesus Christ. They are beloved of God. They are called to be saints. And so we need to know ourselves this way, Christians. You are the called of Jesus Christ, and you are the beloved of God. You know, try that next time you're sitting on an airplane or something. Well, well who, who are you? What's your name again? I am the called of Jesus Christ, and I'm the beloved of him. 
Now, to understand what it means to be beloved of God, we need to understand how God loves. For many people, the only way they have ever perceived or understood or conceived of the love of God is that the, he loves the world, and then for he loves everybody in the same way, and of course, God does love the world. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because when you love your enemies, you may be sons of the Father. In other words, there's something of your love that's like that of the Father, or the Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God's love is broad and general in the rising of the sun and the falling of the rain. The only reason the sun came up this morning, or the earth rotated, however you want to look at it, the only reason was because God loves. That's, that's the only reason. And the only reason the rain ever comes and nourishes the earth and waters the earth is because of the love of God. That's the broad and general love of God. And then John 3.16 says, you know this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In other words, we may offer eternal life to every person on this planet. And that's what we're called of God to do out of his love. To every person on this planet who put his or her faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it was the love of God that sent his Son into the world so that offer can be made to the world. So at least in these two ways, God's love is broad and it's general. He sustains the unbelieving world with sunshine and rain. And he offers eternal life at the cost of his Son to any and all who believe. But is this all that Paul means in Romans 1, 7 when he writes to all who are beloved of God in Rome? Doesn't it sound like he's saying, among all the people who live in Rome, I am writing to the ones loved by God. In other words, doesn't it sound like he's saying that those who are called of God, those who belong to Jesus Christ, are loved by God in a special way. That they are loved not because God loves everybody in Rome. So what does it mean to be beloved of God? I want to use an illustration that I borrowed from Pastor John Piper, and I'll personalize it. I write a letter to my wife, Jan, and I say, I write to you, beloved Jan, be strong and be encouraged in the grace of God. Now, it doesn't sound very romantic, but we'll get there in a minute. <laughs> You know, I write to you. Now, would anybody say the reason Pastor Bill calls her his beloved is because he loves every woman the same way? He loves the way a Christian should love every woman. And since Jan is a woman, she too is loved by Pastor Bill because he loves all women. There, there's a word in the Greek, meganeta. May it never be that I'd love every woman the way I love my wife. Rather, if I write, to my beloved Jan, everybody would assume that there's a special kind of love that I have for Jan. And I don't think this is what uh, the Apostle Paul wants us to miss in Romans 1.7. I don't think he wants you, Christian, to say, 
God calls me beloved because he loves everybody the same. And since I'm part of everybody, I am also beloved. But that's typically what most people believe, isn't it? That's not what verse 7 says. Paul says, I write to all who are beloved of God in Rome. But he does not mean everybody in Rome. He is writing to those who are the called of Jesus Christ. So the love that he has in mind here must be different from the love that God has for everybody in Rome. Just like I have in mind a different love when I say, to my beloved, Jan. It doesn't mean that there's no love in my heart for other people. It means that we have a special love. I have a special love for my wife. I have a covenant love for her. I chose Jan to be my wife on August 2nd, 1975, and I made a covenant with her. And we sealed it with sacred vows before God and witnesses. And according to Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, God sealed it in heaven. And now the love between Jan and me is utterly different than the love I have from any other person in the world. To bring it back to God's love, God loves the called of Jesus Christ with a special covenant love. We call it the new covenant. It does not make God less loving because he loves the called in a special way. It, what? it makes him more loving. It makes him more loving. God made a covenant with his bride, the church, the elect, the called. Yes, God extends his love to the whole world, but God chooses his wife, the bride of Christ, the called, and loves her, loves you, Christian, with a special, precious covenant love because you are his. That's why we need to go back to the precious promises of the covenantal promises in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, where we left off at verse 31, I believe. Like I said, we'll be coming back to, to Romans chapter 8 quite a bit. And Paul is going to be asking a, a series of questions. Uh, one of which is, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to separate us from this love? Will God ever stop loving us, loving those whom he called, loving those with whom he is in covenant? Will God ever stop loving us in the special way? So let's begin with verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to the gracious calling of God, that he called us, that he justifies us, that he glorifies us, that we are his beloved in Christ Jesus? What shall we say? What is our response? What shall we say to these things? Verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect, his called ones, his chosen ones? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. And now we have the big question in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, 
For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why me, Lord? Why any one of us? First of all, God calls us to belong to Jesus Christ. Secondly, God calls us because he has set his love upon us. And thirdly, God calls us as saints. Back to verse 7 of Romans chapter 1. Who is he writing to? To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Called as saints. If there's ever a word that uh, has been wronged in our day, it's that word saint. The word saints never refers to a special level of believers who tower above the average and whatever it is, their godliness or whatever. Saints in the Bible always refers to all believers. All believers. In fact, Paul uses the same phrase, called as saints, in his opening greetings to the Corinthian church. With all its problems, with all its major problems, they, they didn't act saintly at all, but they were still saints. The word saints literally is holy ones or the set apart ones. God calls us to be set apart from this evil world unto himself. Robert Haldane in his commentary in Romans points out that there's an order here. They were saints because they were called and they were called because they were beloved of God. They were saints because they were called and they were called because they were beloved of God. In other words, God didn't call them and set his love on them because of their good deeds or that they deserved it or anything that they had done. Rather, he called them and he calls us and loves us and set us apart to himself in order that we might do good deeds, that we might serve him. The result of God's calling them as saints is that they live as saints, set apart for his service. If, if you know Christ as your Savior, you are a, a saint. So somebody say sometime, you know, well, what's your name again or who are you? Well, well, I'm Saint Bill. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that's what the Bible tells me. Because I've been set apart unto God. I've been called by him. Why me, Lord, one more? God calls us to live in a sinful world. God calls us to live in a sinful world. Paul writes to all who are beloved of God in Rome. Rome was the capital of that huge empire. It was known for its debauchery, its paganism, everything you can imagine was, was evil. The Roman emperor was worshipped as a god. Rome was the center of commerce, wealth, power, and status. It, it represented all that is worldly at its apex. And that's where these saints lived and where they were to reach their fellow Gentiles. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord addresses the church at Pergamon, and he says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. It's where Satan's throne is. But you hold fast my name. In the same way, we live in the midst of a flagrantly sinful world. We live in a flagrantly sinful country. 
Like the people at the time of Judges, we live in a place where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, looking for their own rights. And it is in this place that God calls us to live as saints, set apart for him, holding fast to Jesus' name and holding forth the word of faith. And then verse 7 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as I read those last words, you're not going to know God's grace unless you respond to his call. You're not going to know God's peace unless you respond to his call. You're not going to know the treasures that he has for you for all eternity in Christ Jesus unless you respond to his call. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you when we could not help ourselves because we could never help ourselves. Father, that just because of your love, you reach into our situations, into our lives, into our hearts. And you call us to respond and to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. To know him as Savior, to know him as Lord. To know that the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. And to know you, God, intimately, face to face, as Moses did. Father, it's just overwhelming in thought. The Lord, I pray that uh, if there are some of us here this morning that don't know you that way, that they would respond to your call, Lord. That they would know you. Or if someone has gotten away from you and forgotten these things, Lord, that they would know your mercy and your grace, your love, that you would pull them back unto yourself. And we do pray this in Jesus' name.